0: Okay, we're in Romans. We'll be in chapter 5. I wanted to address... uh, Good morning. You run. You go ahead and run. I'll watch and see if you're like the energizer bunny going back and forth. Um, One of the things I I wanted to uh, address right away... And it's kind of of an awkward thing to do. But um, uh, somebody approached me after the lesson last week and uh, said that uh, they couldn't remember how it was said. I can't find it anywhere in my notes uh, that I went back through. But something to the effect that I alluded to, um, the fact that when grace came uh, through Jesus Christ and we're justified by faith, that the law no longer is relevant. Um, I can't find where I said that, but I don't doubt I might have said something like that because I get rambling sometimes and I might misspeak, and uh, that would be a, a, a heretical statement. Um, so I apologize for that. If anybody remembers what I said and how I said it, I'd appreciate knowing that. The person who approached me did not. So I apologize for that because that's always a danger uh, when you're teaching, and uh, heresy is is real, and we live with it. Uh, there's, it's, it's kind of funny, heresy is a deviation from doctrine. It's not apostasy. And uh, it's very easy to, to, to deviate from doctrine. That's one of the things that pastor is always so careful about when he preaches, and if there's a portion that he's just not sure, uh, he says that because uh, you want to stay away from that. So... Yeah, so we'll leave it at that unless somebody comes up with something. Um, As far as that goes with the law, we uphold the law as a standard of God's holiness. That's how I'd see it. And uh, it's now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, Nobody could keep the law. That's why the law couldn't save. And Jesus Christ alone uh, can keep the law. And that's why he can be our savior And Christ fulfills the law on our behalf and frees us from the penalty of the law, which is wrath. And that's what Paul says. Uh, Law brings wrath. So um, true obedience uh, uh, can be accomplished through the Holy Spirit, and yet because of our sin nature, we never accomplish that. But Jesus did that for us. So we'll leave it there at this point, unless, like I say, somebody comes up with something. So we're going to look at Romans 5-1-11, through 1 through 11, and we're already running late. So up to this point in Romans, Paul is focused on the power of the gospel. And the power of the gospel to take people that are bound by sin and under sentence of God's wrath, and he's a deliverer. He delivers us from that. And he brings us to a new status of a relationship with God, both Jew and Gentile. And that's pretty much what he's concentrated on in the first four chapters, including the time when he, he gave the gospel in a very condensed form, uh, uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17, and then 18 and on for uh, uh, some time he, he delves into the fact of why we need to be saved, why we're all under sin, uh, to the point where he says uh, in chapter 1 and at the beginning of chapter 2, whether it's the immoral, amoral, or moral man, they're all under the same penalty. So uh, self-righteousness and morality uh, doesn't gain you anything in uh, in the eyes of God when it comes to salvation. So we're all under the same penalty. Now in chapters 5 through 8, the focus is going to change. And it's going to come, it's what comes after justification and our new status uh, that God has given us in salvation. Uh, A grace that we did not deserve, but he just takes us from this point in our life of being under sin and under God's wrath, and he he transfers us into a new status that only he can give and that we don't earn. So that's kind of a neat thing, and there's going to be two primary ways that he applies this in chapters 5 through 8. One is the certainty we have that our justification will lead to final salvation, Now, the terminology there can get a little bit awkward. And I can remember years ago, you know, and I'd read some of that. Wait a minute, you know, salvation is a one-time thing. And now we're talking about uh, salvation to come, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's a deliverance that takes place uh, ultimately when we pass into the heavenlies, either through the rapture or through death. So... He deals with that, and he will deal with that more than once in Romans, so we'll come across that a couple times. But justification is a one-time thing. And then the other thing that he's going to deal with is a new power that God gives us for victory over sin and gives us the ability to obey the law, and that is through the Holy Spirit of God. And you'll remember that the Holy Spirit of God, and we'll cover that in just a minute too, is uh, the other comforter. So the first point that he makes on justification is called assurance. uh, It it dominates uh, chapters 5, the first 11 verses, and then the end of chapter 8. So once again, Paul is going to start a subject, he's going to pause it to go into another area, and then he's going to come back to it. And we, we see that constantly with Paul's writing. But that's one of the reasons I wanted to go through this chapter by chapter rather than subject matter because then you can kind of see that, and in the future, if you read through Romans, uh, it'll give you a better understanding of, okay, he's stopping here, but he picks it up again here, and you can follow. The other point, point two, we'll deal with in chapters six and seven, and there Paul deals with the matter of the threats to our insurance, and how as humans, uh, we can come about feeling threatened by both sin and the law, and it causes sometimes doubt, and he'll deal with that in tra- chapters 6 and 7. So let's read, uh, real quickly, read, read chapter uh, 5, verses 1 through 11, okay? This is a beautiful portion of scripture, if you read it this week. It, is just, it just really wants you to kind of shout out and, and say hallelujah, because uh, it's a beautiful portion of scripture. One, one of my favorites, the whole chapter is one of my favorite. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into, his, into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now we're at, starting at verse 3. You see we a lot, don't you? Yeah, so this is us. If you're saved, this is you. Not only that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we are still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved. There's a Now we changed the tense. We went from we have to shall be. We shall be shall we, uh, more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be, future tense, saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you will work in each of our hearts and that we will grasp some of the thoughts of today and we can apply them to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul has established the truth of justification by faith alone in the first four chapters. And uh, we shall see him now detail results of our new status. And I keep using that word because I think that's, to me, it, it really helps us picture uh, what has been done. We have a new status that has taken place in our life. We have went from this to this. And uh, that's how God views us. We don't necessarily view ourselves that way. Because we're still in our bodies and we're still in, in the, the presence of sin. But God feels us that way. So we have two sets of word as a result of our justification that Paul works with here. One is, in the first eight verses, he uses we have. He's a, it's a present tense. This is what we have in Christ, in our present life. And then in verses 9 through 11, he uses we shall be. It's a future tense. So this is where we're headed. This is where we're going in life. And it's hard, it's hard for me sometimes to keep that straight and understand that, but we'll do our best to try that. So having been justified, um, and that's a one-time occurrence. We all understand that we're justified. It's a one-time occurrence. But having been justified, what we see here is 12 blessings that are given to us in our new status. Just a... Just a phenomenal thought, a wonderful thought, of what God has done for us. Now, the Greek tense, as I understand it, uh, from uh, Doug Moose, the Greek tense here points to an already accomplished feat, which we would agree with, justified as a one-time thing, and it's been accomplished. But now, because of these things, we have accomplished in our life twelve blessings that God has bestowed upon us that are ours. We have them. Most of them present tense, a few of them future tense. So let's look at those 12 blessings and see if we can get through this uh, in the little time we have left, okay? The first one is in verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, who can tell me? We have peace with God and we got peace of God. What are the differences? Peace with God and peace of God. Doug. Well, it's a little bit like say, peace of mind, you know, sort of a, a feeling or whatever. But here, peace of is an objective status. Okay. Peace with God, not just a feeling. Okay. So, peace of God is an objective status. What else? Where do we have? What about peace of God? What's the difference? Yeah. Carrie. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, Mike. that God. Okay. And peace of God. Okay. That that, for, that pretty well fits it. Peace with God is the personal peace that comes by ex- exercising faith at the time of salvation. It's a one-time thing. Verse 10 says, when we were enemies of God, and that's what it's addressed there and somewhat what Doug said, when we are enemies with God, we are at enmity with God. We are at odds with him. But when we got saved, we are at peace with God. Now just picture, and I always this, this to me is, is my picture that comes to mind, is we're standing here, God's standing there, but now Jesus Christ comes between us. The holes are in his hands, the hole in his side, and we will see that when we get to heaven. And he stands between us with his shed blood, which has covered the mercy seat. We'll, we'll touch on that again later. We've talked about that a couple times. And with that, God looks through Jesus Christ and he sees us. He sees us cleansed by the sacrifice of blood that was shed. He sees us cleansed. And that gives us peace with God. We no longer are under the wrath of God, which is an ultimate wrath of hell. But uh, so justification dissolves that enmity and gives us a status again of peace between God and a sinner. Now the peace of God is what we seek daily in our life. We we need to seek the peace of God that we are in His will, that we are doing what we ought to be doing, that we are obedient. And that goes back to what I started with in the first lesson faith and obedience. You can't separate the two. If you indeed are a child of God, you are going to find yourself lining up in obedience. Not 100%. None of us do, just like I said with uh, uh, the blunder I guess I made last, last week. But that happens. But the peace of God is what we can have on a daily basis. So that's the first one we see here. The second one, and we'll spend a little time in these first two, and then we're going to go a lot faster. In verse 2, let's read on. It says, through him we have, there it is again, also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, which is a third point, but we gain access. What does it mean that we gain access? Well, one of the, you know, we're talking about the throne room of the king. And if you remember in Esther, and I think Mordecai was her cousin, if I remember right. But it doesn't make any difference, but Esther was selected by King Ahasuerus to be uh, his new queen because of her beauty. Now, he did not understand that she was a Jewess, but he selected her on, on the basis of her beauty. And now we see Haman, who hated Mordecai, uh, he, wants to, he wants the king to rule, and he talked the king into a ruling that he maybe did or didn't fully understand, that all the Jews were to be killed, annihilated. And Mordecai goes to, to Esther and said, you have to speak for us. Well, what did that require? She had to approach the throne room of God without an invitation, not God, of the king without an invitation. And because of that, she potentially could be killed because that's, that was the penalty for for coming to the throne room of the king without an invitation was a penalty of death. That's the picture that we're talking about here with access. Through our salvation, Jesus Christ now has allowed us to have that access to, to God. The throne room of God. And, and you remember in the Old Testament that veil that was between the Holy of Holies and nobody could enter except uh, the high priest uh, once a year. And now we have immediate access. Because when, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil? It was shred. It was, shred. It was opened up. And everybody, everybody could literally go by and see that. If you were a Jew, you could go by and see that, that the veil was shred and it was open and you could see the throne room of God. Well, why? Because Jesus Christ now uh, has now given us that status again. So we have access to God. And... And Christ made it possible to access the very presence of God, as I said, with the veil of shred. Now, in First Timothy two five and six, it said, "There is one God and one mediator between God and man, who the man Christ Jesus." The man—that's a phenomenal verse when you think of it, because that's that's where access comes from. And why? Because he was a ransom for sin for all of us. He was that ransom. So we have access. So the first two things we see here, we have peace with God and we have access <clears throat> to the throne room of God. Then also in verse 2 it says, standing in grace. We have a standing, a new standing, a new status, if you will. And into this grace in which we stand, or you could say, and we stand in this grace. Uh, either, either way would be correct, but the idea is it's a present tense thing. Standing in, uh, in, in Christ Jesus, we have a standing in grace. Now, we're going to see as we go forward just how broad that grace is. Because it's a phenomenal thing that God has given us in his grace. And we can see how broad that is. But in Psalm 130, it said, If thou, Lord, shalt mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And that's where we were before salvation. We could not stand in any way, shape, or form, no matter how good we are, no matter how many good things we did, We see some of the rich people towards the end of life, they start distributing money and and all these causes and stuff, and all they're trying to really do is establish a standing, either before man or ultimately before God. So we have this standing in grace that's given to us. Then also in verse 2, the fourth thing we see is we rejoice in hope and glory. Now, the glory of God, and I've said a couple times, and I've said it for years, the overall theme of the Bible, I believe, is God's glory. That's the overall theme. And I think Romans really proves that. But with that, that overall glory, what does that look like? What, it, what does it actually mean? And the word glory here, the glory of God, means his likeness. Now remember when we talked on the salvation verses in one sixteen 16 and 17, and 17 talked about the righteousness of God, and I said that as the righteousness, the righteous character of God was on display. That's what Doug Bookman, and I would agree with him. The righteous character of God was on display. How was it on display? It said he was revealed in what? In Jesus Christ. His righteous character was revealed in Jesus Christ. Why? Jesus Christ is God's likeness, and he is the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus Christ is the brightness of his glory. That word brightness means outshining. It's, it's a predominant effect, if you will, of lights. We, we've all had the, the thing when the camera flashes or whatever, you know, and boom, knocks you over. That brightness, well, that's who Jesus Christ is. Remember Moses up on the mount, getting the law, and he came down and he shunned. And they couldn't look upon him. Why? Because of his brightness. Jesus Christ is the brightness of God. He is the glory of God. And he outshines. That brightness outshines. That's, uh, remember that. Hebrews 1.3, if you want to look that up. And then the other thing was hope. The hope of glory. The confident expectation that we will be conformed to the image of his son. We will be glorified. You know, that song, Complete in Thee? You know, ye justified, and we're glorified. And that's just a marvelous song. And it's a marvelous thought that we actually can attain that level because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So as we move on here, number five, verses three and four, is being justified. It talks about the rejoicing and suffering. So... uh Number five, have yeah, verses three and four. It says, not only that, but we rejoice, present tense, in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character produces hope. What are we talking about here with suffering? Are we talking about the day-by-day suffering of pain that some have and things like that? Or is it a different suffering? I think it's talking about the suffering that comes to a Christian as they live out their life of a Christian. The questions that get asked. And I can remember when I started at the elevator in 1972, you know, all the questions that I would get asked. The the asking, well, are you gonna go up and have a drink with us after, after work? Well, no, well, why not? Well, I'm a Christian, I don't believe in that. Oh, and then the teasing would come. Well, then another question would come. And you get asked these things, because as, as, our way of life if your way of life is not distinct from the people around you, there's a problem. And there should be some form that we would know of suffering because of our testimony for Jesus Christ. And, and that's what he's talking about here. You can imagine the Jews that got saved. We talked about that many times. They lost everything, many of them. Yes, Dan. Yes. That would play into that too, yes. That, that, he said the constant pressure that we are under of sin every, every day as a saved person. So the suffering, it says, produces endurance or patience. Uh, there's, there's different words, that, uh, synonyms that can be used uh, with each of these, but the suffering produces endurance or patience. I like to use the word there, it, 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 it uh, produces perseverance. And some people get afraid of the perseverance of, of uh, the saints because of the whole tulip thing and the Calvinism. Uh, no. We, have, we, by the power of God, we have the ability to persevere. Now that would fit in with what uh, Dan was talking about. We can overcome those sins in our life because of the perseverance that we get from, uh, from God himself. And then the, the character part of it would be the proof text of salvation. Steadfastness. And if you remember, we went through 1 Corinthians. We started with a steadfastness, and then we ended in 1558 with a steadfastness. They were bookends to the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And the steadfastness that we have uh, under trial. James uh, chapter 1 and verse 12 talks about that. Steadfastness under trial. As trials come in our life, we have steadfastness. And uh, the sixth one is, is hope. Uh, hope maketh not ashamed. The original text would be the hope, the article. that Ellen McLean uh, would hold to that very firmly, that the article should be there. It's a definite article. And when you see the in the Bible, there's times it is a definite article and times it isn't. But uh, we can have confidence in the ultimate re- resolution that we are going to be someday in a perfected place with God Almighty. And we can look forward to that. So verse 5, or uh, uh, pardon me, verse 5 yeah, goes on. Sufferings produce endurance. And verse 3, endurance character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So that, that confident expectation, we, we don't have to be ashamed of that. And when you're talking to somebody and you say, I know I know I'm saved and going to heaven. And they don't understand that. You know, it shouldn't be a prideful thing. It should be a a pity on our part for them. And we should try to bring them along. Why? Because we know that that's given us by God himself. It's the ultimate resolution to all of of, uh, uh, sin and all of earth's problems is the presence of God that we will be able to enjoy. The seventh one, the love of God in verse 5. It's an experience of a true Christian that we have have experienced the love of God. And he goes on here and he says, uh, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. There's a support system there that we have of the Holy Spirit of God. He indwells us. He's a part of us. And who is the Holy Spirit of God? Remember, he's the comforter, the other comforter. He is equal to Jesus Christ. And when Jesus left this earth, he left a comforter behind with his followers, and that was the person of the Holy Spirit. So uh, let's go down to the ninth one in verse 6 to 8. Proof of God's love. Help me out here. What is this saying? For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die, even dare to die. That God shows his love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. What's he talking about there? How do we understand that? When he says one would scarcely die for a righteous person, perhaps for a good person, what's he, what's he talking about? What's, what's the point he's trying to make? Any thoughts? That one's always been a confusing, confusion to me. Okay. Some object or being good or worthy or anything, but it's just the appointed moment in God's redefinite plan that it was holy of constant. Okay, God's free grace. Mike. Okay, Steve? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And I and I think I think those are all good. I think they all enter into this. But I think what Paul's really telling us here that None of us were righteous and none of us were good. None of us were righteous or good. And yet Christ died for the wicked, the evil, the, the, the beings that we were. None of us were righteous or good. And I agree. You know, I think many times, okay, if, uh, what if somebody came, uh, came into the church uh, with a weapon and uh, was planning on using it? What would I do? And I'd like to think if I was close enough, I might rush the person, partly because I figure at my age, I, I certainly would see myself as, as a person that would be, quote-unquote, more expendable than somebody with a bunch of young kids and that type of thing. Well, none of us really know what we do in those circumstances, probably until the circumstances uh, show. And that's what Steve was alluding to, too. So until those circumstances are before us, but God... He didn't die for a righteous person, and he didn't die for a good person. He died for wicked people. All of us. Not just those in front of him that day, but all of us. And that's a a wonderful thought when you think of that. That uh, proof of God's love. We weren't good or righteous. Okay, then we're going to close up here with the we shall be, the futures. What's what's ahead in the future? And verse 9 starts at, says, since therefore, now there's, there's the therefore again, so that kind of tips us off that we're starting a new line of thinking. We have now been justified by his blood, past tense, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So that, that's the first one. The ju- it's a judicial uh, statement here. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 18 through two eleven, it tells us who we were. We're either in the immoral, amoral, or moral man classification, but the reality is we're all dead. We're all dead, and we all deserve the wrath of God. That's what he was trying to point out there in those verses. And here it's a judicial statement that we have immunity from wrath. We have been given immunity from wrath. We shall be saved. Now that term sometimes... Confuses people again when it talks about we shall be saved. Well, I thought we already were saved. Well, yes, we are saved in justification. But we're going to see here another phrase that comes up. Salvation is not complete until when? And that will be when? In eternity. When we're in the presence of God... And that's what Paul is alluding to here with the phrases that he's, he's talking about. We shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. We will ultimately find that. Now, do we suffer directly from the wrath of God as saved people? No, but I tell you what, if you were a saved person in Ukraine right now, you might feel like you're suffering from the wrath of God, and, and, and that is part of the wrath of God. He allows wars and battles and things like that, and Christians get caught up in them. Do you think uh, the Christians who have been persecuted and killed in Arab countries, do you think that they they feel at times they're in the wrath of God? They sure do feel that way. But it's the ultimate destination that we have in spite of where we are. We are so protected here in America and have been from any kind of persecution as Christians that I think sometimes we almost feel like, well, you know, I'm a I'm a Christian, so I'm not going to suffer. Oh, I might have a little arthritis or bad back or something like that, but we're, we're not going to suffer because we're Christians here, and we're in a Christian nation, and we kind of get caught in that mindset, and that's that's not that's not true, and it's not true here. But judicially, we have immunity from wrath of God or the judgment of God. We will not suffer that. The unsaved will. And then the, the 11th one, we got two left, and then we're done. Verse 10. What does this mean? He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are re- reconciled, shall we, we could, we could read it, we shall be, or shall we be saved by his life? We shall be saved by his life. So what's that talking about? How are we going to be saved now that we're reconciled? How are we going to be saved by his life? Jesus crucified, then what happened to him? Pardon? He was buried, and then what happened to him? He's resurrected the third day. And was he resurrected to what? To life. He's resurrected to life. And then then he ascended, of course, into heaven. He appeared to a lot of people in his bodily form as a resurrected being. And so the death of Christ covers our sins, and once saved, also saved. We believe that, and I absolutely believe the Bible teaches that. But in verse 10, it says, where we are reconciled, that's a past tense. So his resurrection proved his deity as As the God of Heaven, it also proves that he lives the tomb is empty, and in like fashion, we can also live for eternity, and we will be resurrected so you know we 're joint heirs with christ we're we're brothers with Christ, and the same process he went through he went through the death, he went through resurrection we will not in the same form in the same way, but we will also go through that that process. we are saved, we are justified we are living. Uh, as saved people today because we're reconciled that reconciliation and that that 's a pretty important term reconciliation we 're going to be seeing more of that as we go forward because the reconciliation we see there was vertical with God, but now we see reconciliation we are to be ambassadors for Christ we are to be reconciled with those around us there's there, there there's There's nobody in this church that should be at odds with somebody else. There should be reconciliation. It has to be. If it doesn't happen, then that is not looking Christ-like. If the issues aren't taken care of, that's not Christ-like. And we're to be Christ-like. So the reconciliation is an important term. But his resurrection is also a precursor. He was a first resurrection. It's a precursor of our ultimate resurrection. Whether it's in the rapture, be taken out alive, or after, after we're dead and we're resurrected from the grave. So his life is that example for us. What happened in him, and he, he's, he's still living, even though he is crucified, he's still living, and he did die. He did die. Don't get caught up in some of the teaching that says, well, he was just kind of a, in a coma for three days, and then he got up and moved the stone and walked out. No, he did die. And we have died to sin and brought anew as as, as justified, but ultimately we will physically die if we're not raptured, but we will be resurrected just as he was. So his life is a pattern for us. It's an example. And then the last one is this, verse 11, rejoice in God. And it says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, we are reconciled. As I said, that's a vertical. And we must practice reconciliation. Uh, real quick, turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We got a minute here to read this. We went through this in, uh, when I taught the Sunday school class on, in, on, in Corinthians. Um, what was... What was a big issue in the Corinthian church? There was a lot of them, but what would it be a big one that you could just describe? There was a lot of what? Okay, there's immorality. What else was happening? There are all kinds of divisions in that church around certain things. All kinds of divisions. And he comes here and he said. He says, uh, and he's talking here now, the ministry of reconciliation is the topic here. In verse 18, he says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And by doing that, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we have the vertical, and now the horizontal. All in those few words. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting or crediting, we had that verse. Uh, we had that talk here a couple of weeks ago. Not crediting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's our reconciliation message is between uh, unbelievers and God. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And with our reconciliation to God. Uh, we are to be Christ like, that means there should be reconciliation always between the people of God. And, and, and I, I've been told this in the 47 years that we've been in this church. Uh, every pastor I've had at some point has said, Well, Grant, you know, if there's an issue there, you need to get that reconciled. You need to get that dealt with between people. That has to be a must. And the biggest thing you have to do to do that, the first thing you have to do is be able to raise your hand and say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Now the reconciliation is put on the other person to say, I forgive you and all is good between us. That's a responsibility that's there. But reconciliation is important. So we have assurance here of 12 blessings that we possess, that God has given us because of our justification, our salvation, 12 blessings. Uh, most of them are current, nine of them, three of them are to come, But you could say they're current because they're going to be part of our life going forward. And now next week we delve into the second half of chapter five, which is you know, to me at least is 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 fairly complicated. And that's the first Adam, second Adam topic. And we will address that next week and hopefully also get into chapter six. Thank you for your time.